I am certain, I did, I did not raise, grow up in a home, I'm certain of this, but this is not my statement. I, um, I didn't grow up in a home with a father who was a preacher or a pastor. And so uh, I'm certain it was difficult on my children, my two boys, uh, as they were much younger and I guess at that point still loved their daddy. Uh, they, they would go with me from time to time in different places that I would be invited to preach and uh, oftentimes they would hear the messages and uh, maybe offer commentary later. But in different places where I had the opportunity to preach, uh, not necessarily where I pastored, uh, every pastor has a sermon that he considers his favorite maybe or uh, sugar stick if you will. There are a lot of, lot of messages that, that uh, I might list under that category. But in Matthew chapter 14, the story of Jesus walking on the water has often been one of my favorite messages to speak. And I've tried to approach it in different ways and different times to keep it fresh. But uh, more than once I've preached this message on under the theme or the title, How to Walk on Water. Well, my sons had heard that message a time or two or three. And I would go somewhere and that was the question, Daddy, you're going to preach how to walk on water this morning? And after I'd tell them to shut up and things like that, <laughs> in a polite, loving, godly way, if there is one, uh, I'd say yes. And then we'd go on. Well, this morning I'm not preaching how to walk on water necessarily, but I do want to deal with this text. But God gave me something as I was studying and preparing and researching for this message a little bit different. Uh, I want to always strive to be fresh uh, in the sense as I study the Scripture. And you know this, that you can read the same passage that you've read many times and hear something different, Right? that you've never, or see something different that you've never seen before. And in an essence, that's sort of what I find here, maybe, or it was renewed to my mind that I had forgotten that. So this morning in Matthew chapter 14, as we journey through Matthew, I want us to see evidence of deity. Matthew chapter 14 in verse 22, Immediately Jesus made His disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me 
And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they had gotten into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they came to the end of Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent out into all that that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick and begged him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched it were made perfectly well. There are some obvious things that you've heard as you've looked at this passage in the past. And remember, when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, the conclusion Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor save in his hometown. Or a modern translation of that, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, I don't want us to apply that to Scripture. Because you are familiar with this, because I'm familiar with this, don't be contemptuous toward this text. What can we gain? What can we see fresh and new in this? Well, there are the obvious things. There are great lessons to be taken from this text. But then there's a new lesson that, that, that I've come about that's not new revelation necessarily, but something that's new to me or something that's kind of opened my eyes even more so. And it would fall along the lines of answering the question, why did Jesus do this miracle. Why did Jesus do all that he did in this storm among these disciples? Well, keep that in your mind as we look at this. I, in this setting, you know what's taking place here. Jesus is sending his disciples apart from him, away from him, to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. How was he intending to get there? Well, we don't know that except for the fact that Jesus knows all things and he knew what was going to take place. But Jesus sent them away while he went to pray. There are lessons that can be learned from this text as we look at the storm. Uh, Obviously, the storm here is... Symbolic of things in our life that we go through. It was a physical storm, but it was also a storm within the hearts of these disciples. Jesus there sent them to go to the other side. And and where did this storm come from? We know on the Sea of Galilee that sudden storms, squalls, would, would come oftentimes without warning and hit and be somewhat... Dangerous. I mean, the text describes it for us very clearly when it says that they were tossed by the waves and the wind was contrary. That phrase contrary, or word contrary, uh, of the wind says it was in their face. And so we understand some things about this storm. But maybe what we don't understand is that our Lord knew that this storm was in the path of His disciples. He was allowing His disciples to go and to to experience this. We might say it this way, that it was in the Lord's plans for His disciples. That ought to speak to us. There should be a lesson we gain from that, that you can be God's child and Him allow you to go through times of difficulty. 
He has a purpose in that, just as he did with his disciples. Why did he allow this to take place? Where did that storm come from? There are those that would suggest that it, in its origin that it was satanic. That it was Satan that stirred the waters and the storms to maybe rid these disciples, these followers of Christ. But regardless, here are these disciples in the midst of a storm. And it had a purpose. The scripture says in in verse 24 that they were in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves. You may have a modern translation or another uh, word that's used here. It's they were beaten by the waves. Why did Jesus do that? Knowing that they were going to the other side and being all-knowing as the Lord is, why did He let the disciples go into a storm? Why does He let you and me? Well, I think one of the reasons here, maybe a secondary reason, is to let the disciples see that they can't handle life on their own. If you're a follower of Christ, there are storms that are coming, and sometimes we, uh, we stick out our chest and we, we, we breathe out a sigh of conquest, I guess you would say, and, and, and somehow we think, I can handle this. I've got this, we'll say. But what Jesus is allowing His disciples to go through is to show them that they can't make it on their own. Storms are sent our way, according to Warren Wiersbe, storms are sent on our way to often to correct us. We've done something wrong and the Lord is correcting us. Sometimes He sends storms to direct us, to turn from one direction to go to another. But then He sends storms to perfect us, to make us more Christ-like. And maybe this is what this storm was partially for these disciples. To whittle off some of that machismo that Simon Peter had that he could make it on his own. So the Lord allowed this storm. And we can learn from that, that sometimes storms come into our life because God plans them to come into our life. But I I love the picture that's found here. It's a beautiful contrast Where did Jesus go? Well, we're told in the earlier verses that He sent the multitudes away and He went up into the mountain by Himself to pray. The Lord Jesus is in the mountain praying. And look at this. The disciples are in the boat in peril. And Jesus sees them. Jesus knew that they were there. That's comforting to me. Is it to you? That in the storms that we face in our life, the Lord Jesus knows that we are in them. Does He care? Yes, He cares. What is your storm? Either you're going into one, coming out of one, or about to go into one. There are storms coming your way. And He knows. And, And beautiful picture that it is, the Lord is praying for His disciples. I'm sure he's praying for other things, but the scripture says that it was in the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them. How long did the disciples struggle with the, uh, with, with, on the sea and in the midst of the storm? We're not necessarily told. We know this much. It was long enough for them to realize they weren't going to make it in the midst of the storm, that they needed help. And so in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came walking on the sea to them. Jesus came to them. The fourth watch of the night. The fourth watch is the darkest. It's just before the dawn and it's always darkest 
3 a.m. to 6 a.m. is what when the Bible talks about the fourth watch of the night. The disciples are in peril and the Savior is in prayer and He comes walking to them. Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says that He ever lives to intercede or make intercession for His children. Are you comforted by that? We learn a lot from the storms in this very familiar story. We learn that the Lord allows it. He plans it for our lives. We, we, we learn that He prays for us as we go through these times. But there are other lessons that can be learned from this very familiar story. Not only from the storm, but we learn about the Savior in the midst of this. Very simply, we learn that the Savior is supreme. I mean, the, the waves that were over the disciples' head were under the Savior's feet. We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more in, in our, after I get past this introduction. We'll, we'll see the, uh, uh, the Savior's supremacy. And, and look at what verses 25 and following say. He came walking to them on the sea. And when the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, they were troubled. Now we have to ask, were they troubled because of the sea, the storm rather, on the sea? Or were they troubled by what they saw in Jesus? Well, the context of this says that they thought he was a ghost, or the, the Greek word is phantom. They thought he was a spirit being. And so they were afraid. And Jesus cried, They cried out for fear, verse 26, but Jesus immediately spoke to them saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Now, He's the Lord who is sovereign over the trials, the storms of our life. He's also sympathetic in the midst of those things. And we see His sympathy when the Lord said, Be of good cheer. In other words, do not be afraid. It is I. I've told you this before and you've, you've probably heard it, but that phrase, it is I, could, gives a lot of folks question about was Jesus saying, I am. We've studied the I am statements in John's gospel. Possibly could this be the Lord Jesus saying, I am the master of the storm. We see his sympathy in the midst of the storm that these disciples are in, the peril that they are facing. We see the Lord Jesus saying, how? In verse, again, verse uh, 27 says, immediately, Matthew uses that term, immediately. I might have let somebody... Linger a little bit. <laughs> Isn't that what some of us do? We, we tend to let them until... They already, apparently, if the Lord's purpose in this miracle was to show them that they couldn't make it on their own, they had reached that point. And Jesus immediately spoke to them, Be not afraid, it is I. In the midst of the storms of life, that's what you and I need is the I Am, the Lord Jesus Christ. We can learn the lessons of His supremacy, but we learn the lesson of His sympathy immediately. What a sympathizing Savior. Maybe you're going through a difficult time because of the loss of a loved one or some other crisis in your life. And you may be saying, I wonder if Jesus really cares. I want you to know He does. He is the sympathizing Savior that reaches out to you this morning with His love, His care, and His concern. So this familiar story gives us lessons from the storms, lessons from the Savior, 
what often we remember of this story as we look at uh, the, uh, go back to our days in Bible school and Sunday school as little children, we think about Simon Peter. And so I, there are lessons to be learned from the saint, old Simon Peter. Look what he says, verse 28. Peter answered him. Isn't that always the way Simon Peter does? Nobody said a question. But Peter answered him. He, he spoke in response to what Jesus had just said. Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. So Peter speaks up. And he said, Lord, if it is you. Now let me give you an alternative or alternate translation here. Lord, since it is you. The conjunction if should be since or could very well have been translated since in the English language. Lord, since it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Back in the day when I would use that little cute, trite phrase, how to walk on water, here's where I drive that point home. You want to know how to walk on water? Here's the way Simon Peter did it. Lord, if it's you, give me the word. How can you and I walk on water? We get the word from Jesus. Jesus said to him in verse 29, come. Now, when we think of this and we think of Simon Peter here, we often think of his defeat. But I want you to see his desire first. Simon Peter desired to be with Jesus. There's something to be said about in the midst of the storms of life that you and I face of the child of God, the follower of Christ, having a desire to be with Jesus. Lord, if it's you, bid me to come to you. The Lord gave him the word, you come. Do you have that desire? You know, there's a beautiful contrast here, or a picture that's here. The follower of Christ may not have strength in the storms that we face, but Christ in you does. That's why we need to get the word. How do we get the word from Jesus? It's in this book. It's in the word of God. Don't go out there and close your eyes and cross your legs like an Indian or something and, and, and sing hum kumbaya and empty your mind and think somehow that you can get a new revelation. Get into the Word of God. Open your eyes and read and listen and hear what God has said in His Word. That's God speaking today. Christ said to Simon Peter, Come. How do you walk on water? You get the word from Jesus. How do you walk on the water of storms that come into your life? You get the word from Jesus. But we see the defeat of Simon Peter. We all, you could fill in the blank right here or easily finish this. It says that the wind, when Simon Peter walked on the water to go to Jesus, when he saw the wind and that it was boisterous, he was afraid. Maybe one of those waves raised up and popped him in the face. Simon Peter took his eyes off of the Lord Jesus and he began to sink. Isn't it amazing? Look at his simple prayer. Lord, save me. You ever been there in the midst of a storm? You thought you were doing right. Lord, I got out of the boat like you wanted, like you gave me permission to do. And now, Lord, I messed up. I took my eyes off of you. Lord, save me. Have you ever done that? I have. 
There's not a lot of room for these long, flowery, King James language prayers in the midst of crisis. Simon Peter said, Lord, save me. And I love verse 31. This is rich with so many contrasts or pictures. But look here. Verse 31, and and immediately, there's that word again, he didn't wait. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Can you think of another time that Jesus stretched out his hand and caught a fallen soul? I can at Calvary's cross. When he stretched them out upon a cruel cross, to bear your sin debt and my sin debt and to pay it in full. And immediately, He stretched forth His hand and caught Him. He offers a word of rebuke. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Some may say, well, doubting was His problem. Well, certainly. But see, greater than that, the Savior, in spite of Simon Peter's doubt, the Savior reached forth His hand. You and I are riddled with doubts, are we not? We go through life, Lord, I don't know, I can't understand. Lord, we face trials and tribulation. But in spite of our doubt, immediately He stretches forth His hand. Oh, what what a beautiful picture. Verse 32, And then they got into the boat, and the wind ceased. There's much to be said from these lessons that we've seen from the storm, from from the Savior Himself, and from the saint Simon Peter as he took his eyes off of Jesus and began to sink. But I'm convinced that there's more. Here's the reason. I asked to think about this. Why did Jesus perform this miracle? Hold your finger here and turn with me, if you will, to Mark. No, let's go to John's account. John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We'll go to Mark as well, I believe. Um, Mark and John both record this. John 6 and beginning at verse 15, we have this same account. John 6, verse 21 says, Then they willingly received Him into the boat. And here's that word again. Immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Don't forget that. I'm a little out of order here. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. This is why we do notes and supposed to follow them. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Mark chapter 6. Mark records this for us as well. Remember what preceded Jesus sending these disciples to get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. It's what we've looked at just recently. Jesus fed 5,000. Okay? What happened at the end of that 5,000, that feeding of 5,000? They took up 12 basketfuls of the leftovers. 
Miraculously, the Lord provided and then some. He's always more than enough. Had the disciples gotten that in that miracle that Jesus had done for the probably somewhere between 15 to 20, maybe even 25,000? He fed 5,000 men plus the women and children. Look at Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52 give us the same account that we find in Matthew 14. Walking on the water. But look at the very end of that. Well, let's start at verse 51. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves, themselves being the disciples. Okay, they're on the Sea of Galilee. There aren't others. It's the twelve. It's the followers of Christ that are disciples, eleven of whom would become apostles. And they were doing what? When when Jesus lifted Simon Peter out of the water, He said, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Look at this. They were amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. Verse 52, For they had not understood about the loaves, because their heart was hardened. You mean Jesus had miraculously fed maybe 20, 25,000 hungry individuals with, with five barley loaves and two pickled fish from a little boy's lunch. And there were 12 basketfuls. I think those 12 baskets were in the ship. And they're going across the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes and Jesus at just the right time when they were terrified, He comes to them walking on the water And he rescues them, even showing Simon Peter a little bit more of his care in the midst of storms. And what did they do? Back to Matthew's account. What did they do? Matthew 14 and verse 33. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Why did Jesus do this? to give evidence of His deity, to show them who He was. They had seen miracles, but listen, this miracle was just for them. This wasn't for the multitudes that some may have very well been unbelievers. They were just following Him for another trick, for another another meal. But Jesus did this just for the disciples, the twelve. We see His divine power over nature. It's not just one miracle that's here. There's there's, there's the miraculous power over uh, uh, Him, over gravity. He's able to walk on water. There's there's miraculous power over the storms. Just as He steps into the boat, the winds cease. And that John 6 passage that I got out of order, but we read it, John 6, uh, 21, His power over time. For it said that as He got in the boat, they were immediately then at the other side. Now you may rationalize that and say, well, it's just the the course of the wind and everything had gotten them where they were. I think it's an evidence of His superiority. Or I call these lessons of the sovereignty of Christ. He's showing His disciples. He's convincing them 
who he was. All of the other things, feeding 5,000, wow. Plus the women and children, wow. But it wasn't for them. And they hadn't, well, what did Mark say? Their hearts were hardened. Jesus did this just for them. Slow learners, eh? (laughs) Aren't we? How many times have we seen others? You've seen people in this congregation that God's worked mightily in their life. God's transformed them from the darkness of sin and God's rescued them and saved them. And that's wonderful and we can rejoice. But here's the question, has He done it for you? Have you experienced that to yourself? You see, that's what Jesus is doing. The end of the story here, Matthew is telling us that that the uniqueness of this miracle is that He did it just for them. They weren't simply spectators. God did something for them. No one else sees it. And there's no other purpose of this than to build their faith. So much more, so much we can learn. From this miracle. Listen, when we know in our hearts that God has done something for us, that's a faith builder. Do you know that He's done something for you? The the, the glory of, of, of salvation, that He's done it for you. We can talk in the abstract about, yes, He died on the cross, and yes, yes, we believe that Jesus existed, and yes, He was a good man, He did miracles, and He taught. But do you believe that He did it for you? That's the miracle and the purpose behind this miracle. It was just for the twelve. And look at this, at the end of that it says that they worshipped Him. One affirmation of the deity of Christ is Jesus accepted worship as God, as the Son of God. C.S. Lewis said, if he's not who he said he was, then he's a liar with the mentality of a poached egg, a lunatic. But he is who he says he is, and he did this for them. He accepted their worship. What unique contribution has God made in your life? Has He saved your soul? He did that for you. I I love to think of redemption as a personal redemption. We often think in the masses, don't we? But as, as has been said of old, that if you would have been the only one, Jesus would have died for you. It does something when you know specifically for you that He's done something. And so when you face shock, when you face grief, when you face hopelessness, when you face being wronged, and you know that you were wronged, how do you go on? Be mindful that Jesus did it for you. He stretched forth His hand on the cross of Calvary for you. And He paid the debt for your sin. You and I are worthy of eternity separated from a good God. Spend eternity in a devil's hell. But Jesus took our place on the cross of Calvary. He did it for us. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of this. The sovereign Son of God did this for His disciples and He does this for us, for you individually. How do you respond to that? Let's pray. Lord, what a... 
What a good word as we study the Scripture. What an encouraging word. As we know and we recognize that you've done miracles in the lives of others. This morning may we recognize what you've done for us in paying the debt for our sin. You are the Sovereign Son of God. You are Almighty God. And you stretch forth your hand on the cross of Calvary as the God-man. You paid the debt for my sin. You are worthy of our worship as the Son of God. You are worthy of our praise. And I pray, Father, this morning we wouldn't look to the things you've done for others or the things that we know about from the Scripture that were for the disciples or for others. Lord, we would look at what you've done for us and give you the glory that you're worthy of. I pray for that lost sinner this morning that needs to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that they would acknowledge they're lost and their sin is what has separated them from you and that they would believe that Jesus died in their place for them. I pray, Father, for Christians, Lord, that we would, in our moments of doubt, that we would remember what you've done for us. You stretched forth your hand on the cross of Calvary. And you live today to ever intercede for us and care for us as you do so well. Lord, may we worship you. This world may be turning more and more away from you. May we look to You and keep our eyes upon You in the midst of the storms. For we pray in Jesus' name, Amen.